0: Hopefully you have a copy of the Confession with you. We're going to finish chapter 6 of the Confession. What I want to do, and I'm going to let you keep your seat while I read this passage of Scripture. I'm going to read it and give a brief exposition... And, uh, and all of this will just sort of be introductory to the topic because I do want to show from the Scriptures what we're about to learn uh, by the example of the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. The saying is trustworthy... And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now as most of you know, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy who he refers to multiple times as his child in the faith. Paul knows that death is not far away. Second Timothy is assumed by most to be the last letter he ever wrote. So he knows that death is not far away. We know that he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2 to Timothy, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is following his own injunction here by teaching Timothy. Again, he's an old man. Paul had been converted by the Lord, discipled by the Lord, had now walked with the Lord for many years. And now he's trying to entrust to Timothy what had been entrusted to him so that when Paul has gone off the scene, Timothy will be able to take up the baton. Now, this verse that we've read, 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul speaks of sinners in need of salvation and that salvation provided in Christ Jesus. He speaks of the purpose of Christ's coming into the world. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The purpose of His coming was to save those very sinners. And then He turns to speak of Himself in this phrase, of whom, that is the sinners, I am the foremost. That word foremost means the first or the chief, the best, Sinner, the preeminent sinner of all sinners. What he's saying is, Timothy, when it comes to being a sinner, I rank above them all. The center sinner of sinners. And notice the tense of the verb. Of whom I am the foremost. Present, active, right now and continuing. I am being the chief of sinners, Timothy. Now here's what I want you to see. At the point of writing this letter, the aged saint of God declares himself to be the sinner of sinners. Doctrine from that. Mature, older Christians are not free from sin, but rather they are merely able to see more and more their own sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And I pray that You would lead us now into more of Your Word and teach us Lord, what we are and what you have done and are doing to us in this great work of salvation. Lord, help us to see this and and understand what you're doing so that we know how to battle and how to pray and how to to fight and how to encourage one another. Teach us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are looking at our confession, and what I want to do is very quickly, as I often do, just give a quick recap of this chapter. We have five paragraphs. We've covered four of them. Paragraph one, we learned that God created man upright and perfect. Satan seduced Eve. Eve seduced Adam. Adam sinned willingly. And God, according to His eternal counsel, purposed that event or those events, the whole thing, for His own glory while remaining free of sin. Paragraph 2, sin corrupted Adam and Eve and so they lost communion with God and that severed relationship spread to all men because that corrupt human nature was passed to all men." And so the human nature is now defiled in all faculties of body and soul. That, the, the two major doctrines found there. The doctrine of original sin, which leads to or produces what we know or call total depravity. That's paragraph 2. Paragraph 3, since Adam was our federal head. Remember that language of federalism, covenantal representation, because that's going to come up in the next chapter of God's covenant. Since Adam was our federal head, our covenant representative before God, all men who descend from Adam are liable to judgment, not just because of their sins, but because of Adam's sin. All men are conceived in this fallen condition and will remain in this fallen condition unless Christ, the second Adam, sets them free. Paragraph 4. It's from this fallen condition in which we find ourselves that all actual sins flow. So we are not constituted sinners or guilty when we commit our first sin or when we uh, reach this um, age of accountability. Rather, we commit our first actual sin and every subsequent sin because at conception we are sinners. We are imputed the guilt of and the nature of Adam. And I said, I think it was two weeks ago, that at at whatever moment a life is susceptible to death, there you know there is guilt for sin because the wages of sin is death. So then tonight, the question is, What happens to that corrupt nature, that alienated human nature, after a person becomes a Christian? Notice just as with a, a cursory glance at this paragraph, just before the semicolon, we see the phrase, in those that are regenerated. Now we've not read anything in the confession about regeneration yet, but for now, when you read about a regenerated person, we're talking about a true Christian. So what happens to this corrupt, alienated human nature after a person becomes a true Christian? That's the question. What can we say is now true about that person? And paragraph 5 answers that. I've entitled it The Remnants of Sinful Flesh or, if you like the more creative Titles The Fourfold Reality of Remaining Corruption. In this paragraph, we see four very simple truths concerning the corruption of the human nature of a regenerate person. Number one, it, when I say it, I'm talking about the corruption of the nature, it does remain. It does remain. The paragraph says, The corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. Remember, the nature is the essence of humanity, what it means to be a person. We, if you're a human being, the nature of a human being is body and soul, or made up of body and soul. And the corruption of the nature is saying that all of the faculties of body and soul are affected by sin. The corruption of the nature. And so when we say it does remain, what the confession says and what the Bible teaches is that your corrupt human nature does not stop becoming corrupt at regeneration. It doesn't stop becoming a corrupt human nature. Now this is extremely important that we understand this. Why is it that our corrupt human nature doesn't stop being a corrupt human nature when we are regenerate? It's because regeneration is not a reworking of the old corrupt nature. Regeneration is a totally new work of God in the heart of a man. It is the implanting of a new nature at a moment in time. Something new happens. Now, to understand all of this, we're going to to dig into regeneration a little bit. What is regeneration? Regeneration is an act of God flowing from His sovereign grace, mercy, and love, whereby a new divine principle of spiritual grace and life is implanted in the heart. It happens completely and finally at a moment in time. You're never more or less regenerated. You're either regenerate or you're not regenerate. Now, let me show you that from the scriptures. And we'll just look at some of the biblical language for regeneration. First, the Bible talks about this new creation. And this is the language of regeneration. Second, Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now when it says the old has passed away, that is not meant to be taken, that it's completely gone, but that with regard to its influence and power, and that's going to come back up later, it has lost its influence and its power. Notice it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not he has a new creation within him. He is a new creation. So it is appropriate to assign the new creation work to the person themselves. So I don't have to walk around and say, well, I have a new creature in me. I can say, I am a new creature. In Galatians 6 verse 15, Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor un- uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, we could insert in here, when we're talking about regeneration, the, the, uh, the concept of the circumcision of the heart. That'll come up a little bit, but I'm not gonna, I won't address that. But it is synonymous with regeneration as well, the circumcision of the heart. Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created... In Christ Jesus for good works. Not being created, but created. In Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him. Notice the language, created in Christ. That's union with Christ language. We are a new creature created in union with Christ. And notice how, how it's written. We are created anew in union with Christ for good works in order to conduct ourselves in the foreordained good works. We do not do the good works prior to the new creature. We are created anew in Christ and then we begin to carry out the good works prepared by God beforehand. So there's that language of the new creature, the new creation. That is the language of regeneration. Another way that it's spoken of in Scripture is life from the dead. Life from the dead. Colossians 2.13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. Now we have to be careful because every use of life or living is not regeneration. But here, it's in, it's in the past tense. God made alive. The old language is He quickened. You've been quickened with God at a moment in time. Made alive together with Him that is with Christ having forgiven us all our trespasses. Ephesians 2.5, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, speaking of God, He made us alive. Again, that's past tense. A, a moment in time action. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This concept of quickening or being brought to life in a moment in time is... If you're reading theological works, very often tied to the the concept of effectual calling. God speaks and calls us, makes us alive. The call is effectual unto life. We are called, you can read this elsewhere, we are called into union with Christ. He is the vine, we come into Him and we are made alive. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. That's the language of effectual call. Again, regeneration and quickening, that moment in time act is not to be confused with the ongoing eternal life. So, new creature, life from the dead. The, the, The clearest one is the new birth. The language of... New birth. John 13, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If we wanted to smash that sentence together, what is the language of regeneration? It is being born of God. A moment in time, birth. John 3.5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and, water and spirit is synonymous with of God. You must be born of God, born of the Spirit, born of the cleansing water of the Spirit. First John 5, 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been in the past, at a moment in time, born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So, if anyone believes the true doctrine of Christ that Jesus is the Christ savingly that's important because the demons of hell believe that Jesus is the Holy One of Israel they know who he is but saving belief saving faith if anyone does that they do it because prior to that belief they were born of God they were regenerated and birth again happens at a moment in time now I threw this one in here because just in case you're reading somebody and they, they, they might use this language. Sometimes uh, writers will use the language of spiritual renewal to talk about regeneration and that can kind of be confusing. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration, that's new birth, that's new creature, life from the dead, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You can compare that with John's language of being born of God, born of water and the Spirit. Renewal, and this is where we we have to be careful, Renewal is often seen as a process. And you'll even read some old writers who will use the word regeneration to talk about a process. I would say, if we want to be very clear, regeneration is a moment-in-time act, and renewal, if we're, if we're going to use that language, it would probably be more helpful to think of renewal in terms of the process that follows regeneration. I'll show you some text for that. 2 Corinthians 4:16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You see, that's a process. We're being renewed. Colossians 3.10 And we have put on the new self. That's a moment in time we did it. Which is being renewed. The new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Creator. So that renewal language is is really synonymous probably with sanctification. So a person is regenerated at a moment in time and that sparks the process that we could call renewal, work of the Holy Spirit, sanctification. But again, you might read some guys who talk about renewal and they sort of parallel it with regeneration. So we have a new creature, quickening, being brought from death to life, new birth, circumcision of the heart, sometimes renewal. What does all this have to do with the confession? Even in those who have been regenerated completely at a moment in time, that is given life from the dead, born again, new creature, circumcised the heart, we have to be clear that the corruption of nature still remains in this life. Regeneration is not the complete removal of the old humanity and the installation of the new. Sanctification is not the renewing of the old humanity so that the old man will eventually be correct. Regeneration is a new creature, a new work of God. Let me read this from John Gill. Here he's speaking about regeneration. and He says, There are indeed two principles in a man that is born again. A principle of corrupt nature and a principle of grace. The one is called the old man and the other the new. The whole old man is unregenerate. No part in him is regenerated. He remains untouched. And he is just the same. He was only deprived of his power and dominion. And the new man is wholly regenerate. No unregenerate part in him. There is no sin in him, nor done by him. He cannot commit sin. Two principles in a person. Speaking of sanctification, he says, "...by the old man is meant corrupt nature, which is as old as a man in, as a man is in whom it is, and which he brings into the world with him. And by the putting of it off is not meant the removal of it from him, for it continues with him." "...even with a sanctified person as long as he is in the world, nor any change in the nature of it, which always remains the same, much less a destruction of it, which will not be till this earthly house is dissolved, but a dispossession of its power, a displacing of it from its throne, so as not to yield obedience to the lusts of it, nor walking according to the dictates of it, nor have the conversation according to it." Again just because you're born again, that doesn't mean the old corruption of nature is just gone. It remains. Here's an illustration that I, I, I tested out on my wife this week, and I didn't write it down here, so let's see if, if how this goes. Picture this. An old house. A two-bedroom, one-bathroom house on the suburbs, in the suburb, suburbs somewhere. And the the owner of this house, the man who lives in this house, is on disability. So he doesn't leave the house very much. He doesn't have to go out and he doesn't bring in very much money. But the money that he does bring in, he uses to pay what, little, what few bills he has. And then the rest he spends on cigarettes and um, cheap DVDs from the bin the at Walmart, the $5 DVD bin. So he just sort of hangs out watching TV. And he's a slob. He doesn't, clean, he doesn't take care of the house. He doesn't clean. He doesn't fix things. He doesn't upgrade appliances. He doesn't take care of the outside. The house. All he does, he's there, and he just makes it worse. His existence in this house is 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 bad for the house. Okay, so he puts out an ad for a roommate, and a roommate comes, and he moves in. This roommate is a doctor with a pretty severe case of obsessive compulsive disorder. He cannot have a mess, and he makes a lot of money. So not only can he afford to begin to fix stuff, but he comes after this guy who's making a mess and picks up everything that he, he drops on the floor and he begins to renew and clean up and fix, uh, you know, fix the floors and get new appliances and clean things and even fixes the shutters on the outside and pays somebody to clean the yard. Okay, the house is the same house. And on the inside, it's probably going to start looking a little better before it looks better on the outside, but it's the same house, it's just got two guys living in it. Okay? And the one guy has a lot more power than the other guy, and he has a lot more initiative than the other guy. That's sort of a picture of what it looks like in a regenerate person. There are two principles living within you. Pre- uh, previously, the old man had all the dominion and all of the power, except he was worthless and all he did was make a mess. He was corrupt. Then the new guy comes in. We call this the divine, uh, the Holy Spirit, the divine principle of grace. He comes in, and now he, may, he calls all the shots. He rules, and he does what he wants, and he has a lot more power. And so things begin to change. But it's the same house. Does that sort of help? That's not, I don't think that's an, a heretical illustration, but that's the way it helped me to think about it when, when I heard Gil use the language of a, a house or something. So anyway... Here's the the Scripture references from the Confession. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 1 John 1.8 If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Everybody sins. Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. Not I used to be. I am. Fruit comes from a tree, a root. Good trees don't produce fruit. Bad fruit. So if there's sin, there's a bad tree in there somewhere. There's a corrupt seed. Paul says in Romans 7 and verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. The human nature severed from God, it's still in there, but there's also a new divine principle. And that's why he can say there's a war. So even as a regenerate man or woman... We need to understand that if there's anything good in us or coming from us, we can never say it's attributed to just us. While it might come out of us, the source is the principle of God's grace in us. So as for the corrupt nature, it does remain. It's there. Secondly, it, the corruption of nature, has been pardoned. It has been pardoned, the confession says. The corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated and although it be through Christ pardoned. The corrupt nature inherited from Adam, depraved in all its parts and faculties for the regenerate person has been pardoned through Christ. Now to pardon is is pretty much synonymous with to forgive. It means to lift off The guilt. We are imputed Adam's guilt. We are liable to judgment because of Adam's sin. We add to that our own actual transgressions, just more crimes against God. Pardon is when all of the guilt for all of the sin, imputed sin or incurred outright guilt, is lifted off of the offender so that the offender is no longer liable to judgment for that sin anymore. That's pardon. Isaiah 55 and verse 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly Pardon. God is an abundantly pardoning God. He wants to lift off abundant burdens and liability and guilt. He will do that because He pardons. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. And this is interesting because it ties it with regeneration, which is helpful for us. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. That's regeneration. He made alive together with Him. That's with Christ. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. That's the language of pardon. How to do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Notice that because of sin, there is a record of debt owed to God. There are legal demands owed to God. That is, death. This, the legal demands incurred by our trespasses, He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, who was nailed to the cross? That's Christ. So here's the picture. Our trespasses imputed from Adam and incurred because of our sins, lifted off of us, laid upon Christ. Christ is nailed to the cross, taken outside of the city, nailed to the cross, and we are pardoned. We are forgiven because of what He has done. Hebrews nine twenty six says, But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. That's the language of pardon. Put it away by the sacrifice of himself sin that old corruption of nature while it does remain if you are born again it has been put away it's been dealt with through the death of Christ at a moment in time now we're going to get to how this plays out in life so if you're born again the corrupt nature nature remains it has been pardoned through the death of Christ so it is there but it does not stand against you any longer as a debt to be paid. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's gone. It's there, but it doesn't stand against you. So it's, it does remain. It has been pardoned. Thirdly, it is being mortified. I'll read the... Again, the corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ, pardoned and mortified. If we wanted to put all this together, we could say that although it be through Christ, mortified. Now that's also helpful, important. Although it be through Christ, mortified. Mortified means put to death. Through Christ... Our remaining corruption, corrupt nature, is put to death. Now remember when we talked about being dead in sin, and some people say, well, you're just a corpse. And sometimes that's a helpful analogy, but a lot of times it's not. Paul tells us what he means by dead in sin. When we say that our corrupt nature is put to death, that doesn't mean that it's gone or that it has zero power. But what does it mean that it's being put to death? In Scripture this has several various applications. First, there is a, a past reality because of our union with Christ. Romans 6, verses 5 and 6 says, For we have been, un- or if we have been united with Him, that's union with Christ, we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self, that's the old man, that's that loser on disability who's not doing anything in the house, that old man was crucified with Him. Was crucified. When Christ died, He was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin, that's the old man again, might be brought to nothing. That's the language of mortification. That it might be brought to to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The verse just previous to that, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that as just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Mortification means to put to death the old self was crucified. The body of death is being brought to nothing. And we were buried. That language of death, that's mortification. That's a past reality because of our union with Christ. So if you're a Christian, there is a sense in which because of your union with Christ, the old corrupt nature has been crucified and buried with Him in His crucifixion and His burial. And the effects of that come by the Holy Spirit in time. But then there is another sort of past application to us in time in our life. Galatians 5:24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and Desires. Remember, the flesh is the human nature severed from God. Those who belong to Christ have crucified it. And notice who's doing the crucifying. Us. We've crucified it. At the moment of regeneration and repentance and saving faith, every believer crucifies the flesh. It's that old corrupt nature is nailed to the cross. That happens at a moment in time. It's done. If it's not happened, if that hasn't happened, you're not regenerate. If the old flesh has not been crucified, you're not born again. But then there's also a present application for us in time. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That putting to death is a process. Colossians 3.5 five. He, this is a command here, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. See, this is something we are to be doing. We are to be starving that corrupt nature so that it cannot thrive. Tell that old tenant, there's a new rule in the house, no smoking, and no cheap DVDs from Walmart. And he's going to say, I guess i got to leave because I can't live here in these these. These uh, circumstances, that's what we're doing. We starve that corrupt nature. It's a command that we are to be doing, mortifying that all the time. And we are also to be considering ourselves crucified. Romans 6.11, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in the Christian life, we have to reckon ourselves dead to sin. When there is a temptation to sin, we have to remember, I'm dead to that. I'm dead to it. I've, I've put that away. That is crucified. Reckon yourself that way. The old man is, has been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ at regeneration. We crucify our flesh. We are daily to put to death our corrupt nature and reckon ourselves in that state. Lewis Burkoff says the old structure of sin, maybe that's where I got the language or the idea of a house. The old structure of sin is gradually torn down, and the new structure of God is being reared in its stead. The old man is being rendered more and more powerless while the principle of grace is being fed and strengthened more and more and more. And all of this happens through Christ, through the power of Christ by His Spirit working in us. So the corrupt nature is mortified. It remains. It's there. It's pardoned through Christ. And through the power of Christ, it is mortified. Has been, is being, should be, and we are reckoning ourselves dead to it. Mortified. We're putting it to death. And then lastly, it is still sin. the corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin." It's sin. It remains. It's pardoned. It's being put to death, but it's still sin. Both the remaining corruption And the first motions of it, starting all the way at the initial actings of that corrupt nature at any point in time, all the way through the carrying out of actual deeds and thoughts, it's sin. We're not allowed to say, well, that's not really sin because I'm regenerated. That's just a a slip-up or that's just a mistake. It is sin. Romans 7, 23-25. Paul says, But I see in my members... Galatians 5.17 For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's a war. It is sin. It's still there. Real, actual sin remains in our members. In this life, there will always be the remnants of that corrupt nature warring against the new principle of divine grace implanted in us. To quote Gill again, there are indeed two principles in a man that is born again. We might call this duality, not dualism. Dualism, see that? Heresy, run from that. A duality. Two principles in a regenerate man. In an unregenerate man, one principle. Man of sin. That's all he's got. But in the regenerate person, there are two divine, or there are two principles, one divine and one corrupt. Now, hopefully you can see how knowing that is extremely practical. You see, if, if we're gonna live the Christian life, we need to know What we are and what's happening with us, and what God is doing in us, so that we know how to think and how to fight and how to pray. So, for example, by way of examination, knowing this truth, I could ask Is there a war in your members? Is there a war? Do you notice a real war within you? A real honest desire to honor the Lord fighting with the reality that you don't always honor the Lord as you should. You see, the presence of that war is a lot of times a, a more telling sign than we think. If there were no war at all, you got two options. Either you're glorified or you're unregenerate. If there is a war, that's, that's often a good sign. Now... now make sure that it's an honest-to-goodness spiritual war, not just, well, I want to live a certain way, but it's kind of hard. If you go back to Romans 7, Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So the spiritual warfare of a Christian is not battling to consistently try to keep in step with a lifestyle and affections that are really contrary to everything you want. And you're just trying really hard to, to look like a Christian. That's, not Christian. that's not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare in a Christian is utilizing the power of the Holy Spirit to put to death everything that remains in you that is contrary to the new man. Christian spiritual warfare always errs on the side of godliness. The new man always has the home field advantage always you're not you're not trying to bring yourself to be good that's not that's not a christian a christian is doing everything they can to rid themselves of sin because they hate sin that's spiritual warfare i delight in the law of god in my inner being and i and i it it it, it breaks my heart that i'm i'm not living as i should is there a war if there's a war that's good if there's no war that's that's bad another Use of this truth. Remember that you are not done fighting. If you're still breathing, you're not done fighting. A Christian person will wage this war like the Apostle Paul until their dying day. As soon as you feel like it's time for a break or you need a little uh, furlough from the battle, you're just going to rest from this waging war against sin. That's when you're going to be in the most danger. Remember, it was when David should have been off at war that he committed his most grievous sin. Whenever you're supposed to be fighting and you you decide you don't want to fight anymore, that's a problem. So keep up your guard. Keep fighting sin. Again, if the example of the Apostle Paul is any hint as to what this looks like after years with Christ, then growth in holiness will issue in a greater sense of indwelling sin and a stronger pursuit of of godliness. Paul says, Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I'm the chief. When I speak to older Christians, what I see them saying is, I see it more and more and more that it is ingrained in my bones. And no matter how holy I think I become, I wake up the next day and there's still sin. That's Christian maturity. We tend to have this idea that as a Christian grows in maturity, that they are released from being so concerned about sin. That the mature Christians are the ones who don't really struggle anymore with those little piddly sins. We just let that stuff slide because we've just learned a new level of grace that everyone else hasn't learned yet. Let me say, you hear... Things like, well, I used to struggle with that stuff, but the Lord set me free. I found out the Lord was gracious, and so they use grace as a license. What they mean is, I finally figured out how to live like the world and feel okay with it. What they've done is they've stopped fighting. That's what that is. That's not... A regenerate person, a true Christian grows into a deeper and deeper felt awareness of their corruption as they grow nearer to Christ and at the exact same time, they grow in a deeper and deeper, more clear comprehension of that grace that is there, that mercy that is there every morning. But that doesn't. It never becomes a license to just sort of step back from holiness. As they grow, they pursue it harder and harder and harder. So remember, you're not done fighting. The corruption remains. It's still there. And lastly, remember, now that we know this, others are not done fighting either. Other people are not done fighting. When we take our experience and we try to place it over everyone else's experience and we expect the same pace, of sanctification from every person, we run the tendency to make ourselves the standard of growth, rather than letting Christ be the standard of perfection. And so, what that what happens when we forget that others are not fighting or are still fighting? Any sin that I don't struggle with in somebody else, that's grievous. Oh, that's awful. How could they do that? But any sin that I do struggle with in somebody else, well, you have got to give them a break. I mean, we're all sinners. We begin to use ourselves as the standard of growth. The Bible does not give us a standard pace of sanctification. It gives us the perfect standard of holiness. You're not closer to perfection than anyone else who's not perfect. Twelve is not closer to infinity than a million. It's not closer. A million is not closer to infinity than four. The standard is perfection. You're not closer than anybody else. There is no pace but there is a standard that we must pursue and we have to remember that that others are fighting too. So we should seek to be an encouragement to one another to pray for one another. I believe that, that one of the responsibilities of covenant members of a church is that we should ache in our hearts for our brethren when we find out how they're warring against the corruption within them and how they're struggling how they're fighting when we, when we think In our prayer times when you're praying for somebody else and you you think that they're struggling with sin just like I am. And that rips my heart out to know that they are struggling just like I am. And we should be able to rejoice when we see them fighting. You're not done fighting. They're not done fighting but now we know what we're fighting. We're, we're putting to death the old man, and then through the means of grace, the new principle is strengthened and, and built up. Now, all the way until glorification when the new grace principle takes over. So, it does remain. It has been pardoned. It is being mortified, but it's still sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be, be warriors, to fight sin, to know what's happening. I pray that we would be really uh, aware of what's happening in our minds, and our hearts, that we would be uh, constantly battling, putting to death sin. Lord, help us to delight in and, and, and love feeding the new principle of grace. Lord, bless this church. Lord, help us to grow in our our love for you, Lord, and our understanding of your grace and yet our our ardent uh, pursuit of holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.